Hey everyone, it's time for another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Aisha, and we're going to talk about some key themes we're seeing in the world of macro. Hey man, it's been an interesting week. Um, so we've at least got the debt ceiling resolved now, and it looks like the U.S. is not going to default anymore. Yeah, and it, you know this is a theme we've talked about a bit in the sense that. We never felt there was a chance of default. And it was kind of funny how there was this theme of, you know, saying, oh, well, we're all going to die. The U.S. is going to default. There's this huge political divide. And that means, you know, all hope is lost. But at the end of the day, saner voices prevailed. And I think one of the key reasons here for this is not only was there never really a chance of a default because the executive branch can prioritize payments and make sure they pay interest on debt, but also that there was always the underpinning of corporate interests who largely the government obeys their will, not wanting a default. <laughs> and so the likelihood of it happening quite low. And now that we're on the other side of it, it opens us up to some of the consequences of raising that ceiling, doesn't it? Indeed, it does. But I think one thing that, you know, I was quite pleased to see, and this will perhaps change how the landscape looks in the next few months, is the government spending. So the one thing that we did discuss was that if government spending is restricted meaningfully, we would have seen a drop in the GDP numbers because, as we said a couple of times now, more than a couple of times, in fact, that, you know, a lot of the GDP spending or a lot of the GDP growth was uh, driven by government spending. So it's good to see that not a lot of that is getting cut imminently. And therefore, I think we might actually see the GDP growing, uh, contrary to what everybody else or what people were trying to say, that we might see a recession uh, in the next two quarters. Interesting. So you're thinking government spending could help to alleviate the chance of a recession? I do think so. So I, I don't think that we will probably turn negative in the third quarter, uh, or sorry, in the second quarter. Um, I think we, we still remain above the 0% mark for the second quarter. What do you think about the back half of this year? Do you think that that pressure for a potential recession is still absorbed by some of that government spending? Or is there more potential for weakness as we see some of the economy slow further? This is an interesting question. So I think um, we can push that back a little bit now, which will probably mean that, you know, we probably see this, you know, falling into negative territory sometime in the fourth quarter. Um, but again, so I, I think I've said this a couple of times as well, that, you know, it's we may not see a technical recession. We may not actually dip into that negative territory, but we will see prolonged periods of very low growth, which sort of has the same effect, doesn't it? So whether we are technically below zero or not is not the point here. The point is how restrictive the economy has become and what it does after that, the effects it has on unemployment and so on and so forth. 
And for a lot of people that have been dealing with higher prices, if we talk about consumers and increasingly small and medium-sized businesses as well who are not as able to pass these price increases on, they, they face a similar issue. If you have a slowing economy in that kind of a situation where people are not able to acclimate to the higher cost of living or the higher cost of running a business, whether it's because of higher prices or the higher price of money, then that has a still, a, I would imagine, a pretty negative effect on a lot of those parties mentioned. That is to say that households, they aren't yet seeing much relief. They see that inflation is slowing, at least on the good side. And that's helping in the sense that prices aren't continuing to rise as much, but they're still overall in many areas rising core inflation still is uncomfortable for most households and then when we look at businesses they're facing similar pressures from wages continuing to rise especially in the services industry and that's causing them to have to pass on some of those price pressures so for the the average observer for the person that's in this economic environment it could still feel like you're saying pretty bad, maybe a bit like a recession, because you're not seeing the improvement of one's input, the amount of money that they're making commensurate with the rising costs that we've seen, particularly over the last couple of years. Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest issues now is that we are in that kind of, you know, crossover period where we have uh, the economy slowing down, wages still going up, um, you know, as you've rightly pointed out, and therefore inflation still remaining at a level that is uncomfortable to people. And don't forget, we, are, we also are going to be seeing a lot of the benefits being taken away now, right? So we've got the SNAP benefits that have been taken away, and now we're going to have the student loan repayments come back. So increasingly what we're going to be seeing is a pre is pressure on the consumer right now i know there have been a lot of you know tweets out there and there have been some research from banks as well that say that you know the effect is very minimal when it comes to these student loan repayments and you know as a whole or as an absolute that might be true However, when you look at the cumulative effects of everything that's happening, right? So you have credit card spending going up and you have the interest on these credit cards going up. Um, you have mortgage payments going up. So anyone who's actually on an adjustable rate mortgage, and not, there aren't many, but still auto loan payments. So when you figure in everything, it actually does hurt the consumer. And then there's also the expectation, right? So if I am expecting to have to adjust my monthly expenditures by $300, $400, um, $500, I'm going to think about actually trying to save wherever I can, right? So, And once you get into that mindset of pinching pennies, you try to do it everywhere because suddenly you realize that you're in a position where you don't know what's going to happen three, six months down the road. You don't know if you're going to have a job. You don't know how your healthcare benefits are changing because that as well is a huge, huge portion of these changes that are coming through, right? So a lot of the people are getting dropped from Medicaid and there's going to be a big 
change over there. Um, so I, I think everything combined, uh, people are going to start, you know, being careful with how they spend their money. And many of these people are, you know, the younger generation, obviously. And it's not like they have, you know, senior level jobs, right? So, and then on the other hand, you have jobs, you know, going away in many of these lower level positions. And so everything, I think it's not just the student loan payments, that's the focus, but I think that can have a very cumulative impact along with everything else that's happening in the economy to sort of slow down spending drastically. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point. And the the cumulative impacts of everything that's happening, particularly the amount of cost of living increase that just about everyone is having to try to absorb, it hurts. And it hurts particularly in the 20 to 30 generation because they've already largely been left behind. There's never been much of an opportunity. These are the same folks where 40% are still living with family. And on top of that, they have the highest credit card delinquency rates that we've seen since 2010. So the pressure is certainly increasing in this group that are largely not able to participate in the idea of the American dream, where you can kind of bootstrap your way through making, you know, different career choices, rising up through salary, and then eventually buying a home and starting a family. These are folks that have not only been priced out, but now they're starting to deal with some of these aggregate impacts that even if they are living with their family, they don't have the cushion to absorb several hundred dollars of additional spend per month. Now, if we look at this in aggregate, if we look at it across all age groups, all demographics, it doesn't look as bad, like you said, uh, if we're just looking at it in isolation. But if we look at the actual impacts and the actual age groups and their financial health during the situation that we're in now, where many don't even have $400 in their rainy day fund, where um, two thirds are living paycheck to paycheck. And again, um, close to half now are struggling with their bills. This looks entirely different. And it does look like it's going to have some impacts on their ability to continue spending. And just across broader aggregates of consumers, we've already seen a downshift in spending on discretionary. A lot of that demand pulled forward during the response to COVID with so much fiscal and monetary easing that many were able to pull forward their good spending demand by years. And so there's a drop off there in good spending already, particularly in the discretionary uh, side. A lot of people that are borrowing on credit cards where credit card debt is now above record levels, over a trillion dollars of credit card debt, which is just incredible considering how much of that is being used to pay for necessities. And we just read the other day that buy now, pay later is being used for groceries, of all things. And that's more evidence of those younger generations struggling to gain access to credit and to really make ends meet in this environment. So I I side with you on this, that even though I know some are just looking at it as one data point, when you collate all these other data points and you look at the generations and the financial situation that they're dealing with, it actually does look like it's going to have a pronounced impact. And I, I don't think that this administration is going to be able to fight it because there's already bills even passing the Senate, which they've said they'd veto, that would um, 
basically forbode providing additional debt relief. And there's lawsuits that are going up through, uh, uh, you know, the federal judiciary to try to stop this. I believe one might be heard by the Supreme Court from SoFi. There's there's a lot of this stuff going through the motions that it just sounds like the will to keep this going is is diminishing and it's costing the government something like five billion dollars of interest income a month as well having this this uh seemingly indefinite moratorium on student loan payments so it feels like eventually the dam does break and it may be within 30 days of the debt ceiling being resolved that was the agreement that was made between this administration and mccarthy and uh, obviously the administration still wants to try to work on this issue because there's a sizable demographic of democratic leaning voters that would be inclined to support them if they can deliver that relief but kind of sounds like it may not be in the pipeline or it may not be something that's possible. So it's something we have to weigh in. And when we look at the detail, when we look at the impact specifically to who it's going to impact, it seems sizable. Absolutely. I, I don't think it should be something that, you know, we ignore because it, it could have quite a negative impact on consumer spending. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, for everyone out there that's listening, if you're not dealing with this stuff right now in your everyday lives, there's a whole lot of people out there that are struggling to pay their bills, to pay for their groceries, to pay for gas, for for rent or mortgage or otherwise. And while it's not the top tiers of American income earning earners, there are more folks from that area that are struggling, that are on unemployment, that are uh, dealing with some of these issues than we've seen prior. And so it does suggest the problems are a little bit more widespread. It is one reason I still believe that in the back half of this year, we're going to see a pretty significant potential for a more serious decline in the economy and in earnings. And I think that it has everything to do with the consumer has been pulling forward demand from the future with debt cost that has been dropping over the last several decades. And we're now on the other side of that. The debt super cycle is, is challenged and the ability of debt driven, I would argue, overconsumption, where many people live beyond their means because of borrowing, that's also challenged as well. And that's been a big driver of economic activity in this country. Having put it offline indefinitely, that's likely to impact the GDP negatively, as is a lot of the other issues that we face. Uh, so I, I feel like, you know, the commercial real estate situation where office space utilization is so low is not only evidence of a change and a lot of challenges in that environment and the lenders, but and the property owners to refinance as they get into a, a maturity wall from the back half of this year on. But it's also evidence of how business is changing and becoming much more frugal and how it invests in this environment. And I think that's going to be a theme we see moving forward with a rising cost of capital, rising wages, even though we've seen appreciably lower rate of change there to the positive side. It's still a concern that businesses are having. And I think we should talk about that a little bit. I think it's a good segue to talk about the divergence we've seen between goods and services or between manufacturing and other industries versus the services part of the economy. And arguably, manufacturing 
is a smaller part of the economy. It's about a quarter of the business contribution to GDP, where services is about 75%. And we've seen pronounced weakness. We've seen new orders continuing to fall in this week's ISM data to falling for nine consecutive months. We see backlogs and inventories falling at manufacturers while customer inventories continue to grow. And it's, it's set, sending a bit of a signal, particularly with the ADP data and the non-farm payroll data we have, where manufacturing jobs are also um, seeing more pressure, that that's, that's a part of the economy where there's some significant weakness. And yet on the services side, it's the opposite, isn't it? It absolutely is. But I, I just wanted to say something interesting here. I was listening to Mike Wilson earlier today, and he said that even though services is 70% of the economy, apparently 70% of the earnings for the S&P is driven by goods, so goods manufacturing. So I thought that was a pretty interesting statistic. So if we if we are actually seeing, and we are actually seeing new orders coming down, manufacturing coming down, that just means that there's going to be a slowdown in 70% of the S&P's earnings, right? So I thought that was an interesting uh, take. Now, Aisha, could you break that down? Because you're very tuned into the fundamentals and their contribution to the S&P. You know, for listeners out there that are hearing this and thinking, wait a minute, I thought the S&P was mostly technology companies. How does this square? So, in fact, it's they're not technology companies, right? So even if you have tech, even within tech, so for example, even within Microsoft, you have manufacturing, right? You have goods. Uh, Apple, you have goods, right? So... Here again, you have consumers, you have spending. So I think that's something to bear in mind that we're not only talking about the caterpillars and, you know, the industrials or um, the John Deere's of the world, but we're also talking about anyone who produces any kind of goods. So the technology component actually is very, very small when you look at it that way. So earnings is actually driven primarily by goods manufacturing when it comes to the S&P, because most of these companies are huge companies that actually produce stuff that we use. Um, so you look at Procter & Gamble, you look at even Johnson & Johnson, um, their spin-off now, Kenview. So all these companies cumulatively, when you look at them, we actually have more goods than um, you know services making up so the S&P. It would be fair to say that the companies that are part of the services component of S&P are probably also trading at higher valuations. So they have a lower an aggregate earnings contribution based on their market cap versus these goods companies. And maybe that's one of the things that sort of skews it at the surface level for the observer. Correct. So I think it's when you look at the earnings component, so we're not talking about the revenue component as such. We are talking about the earnings component and we are talking also about not the price or the market cap. So when it comes to earnings, the actual solid earnings comes from companies that produce goods. That's very interesting. And I, I would encourage folks out there that are listening that are curious about this to look more into it. Because one thing that Aisha continues to reiterate, and she's always right about this, is the numbers always tell a story. And what Mike Wilson is talking about here is a very interesting story that could potentially emerge in the numbers as well. Absolutely. And I think 
he he still believes that we are going to have a very deep earnings recession, um, as do I. I. I wasn't a big fan of Mike Wilson for a very long time, but then, you know, over the last year or so, I think he started to make a lot of sense. And it's not just because, um, you know, it's not just because he's bearish, but he's very realistic, I would say, so in his assessment. So unlike most other bank, um, let's say, analysts, he's been very vocal and he's been very realistic about his views. And not to say that he hasn't been tactically bullish from time to time. He has been, and he understands where the market is. He understands the liquidity component and all of that. But... I think, you know, he's been a lot more realistic than most of the other um, bank analysts, like, and no disrespect to anyone else. I just seem to agree with his uh, point of view more than most other people. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, to see that we've had some folks out there who have been pretty prescient, him among them, in terms of what we might see. And he still feels this rally is a head fake. I would be inclined to agree with that. I believe you do, too. Uh, and I'm still inclined to think that, yeah, we, we do see a pretty meaningful earnings recession. And I unfortunately think we see a pretty meaningful recession as well. And I don't think that the R word is a bad word in the English lexicon. I think it's actually an important part of a free market, of a functioning uh, at least whatever sort of semblance of capitalism we still have yet uh, left, that that's all part of it. You have to reset the cycle. We've had a 14-year credit cycle that's brought us the most prolific bull market that we've ever seen. There's been a lot of economic expansion, but a very significant amount of it has been driven by debt. That inability to raise capital and when one does at much higher costs is going to constrain growth. And I think it's going to have a pretty pronounced negative impact, particularly when we start to see some of the debt-driven chickens come home to roost, so to speak, when there's a lot of debt that may have some trouble being serviced as we get more into this. It's likely that not only do delinquency rates rise, but I think we'll probably see a rise in default rates as well. And so we go from this debt being a net contributor to economic growth to the inability to service debt or to to acquire credit being deleterious to economic growth and likely pulling the economy lower. But this isn't a bad thing. And I think this is a discussion that's important because recessions are what create generational investment opportunities and not just in markets, but in businesses as well. That is to say, starting a business or investing in a startup or otherwise, some of the greatest businesses were built during the toughest times. And that's also where there's more opportunity to enter a market because competition is being thinned out. So I would argue that in, recessions are a really important part of the credit cycle. It's, it's a necessity to flush out excess and risk and badly manage capital. And it's something we need to cleanse all these zombie companies out there. One startling statistic I refer to often is 42% of the 2000 companies in the Russell 2000 don't make any money. How can they survive in a protracted period of appreciating cost of capital, inavailability thereof for most um, you know, that are out there that are trying to borrow if they're not making any money? It's going to be a lot harder to get their hands on it. How many can survive? And then there's you know, thousands of triple B or lower rated companies that also are similarly sort of zombie companies. So there are some challenges that lay ahead of us.
Yeah, I think you said something that's very, very, very interesting for this period of time that, you know, I think people don't like the fact that people like you and I are bearish, but what you said about this being a generational buying opportunity, it, this is a, exactly what I've been saying, right? So we, we, we're going to come to a point where the entire stock market is going to reset itself. And it's a, you know, we'll probably be able to buy some really, really good companies at really low prices and really great valuations. Now, I understand that a lot of the market is driven by flows and everybody talks about, you know, liquidity and flows and all of that. But then at the end of the day, how do you make that distinction between which company you should buy, so where you will direct your flows, uh, versus where you will not direct your flows, right? It can't be just throwing darts at a board. You're, you need to evaluate these companies at the end of the day. So anybody who starts to say stuff like, you know, fundamentals don't matter, and, you know, yeah, sure, they don't matter in the sense that there is... Um, sort of a disconnect between market prices and the fundamentals. But that isn't exactly what we want, right? What we want rather is for the fundamentals to make sense because that's how we know that we are actually investing in a good company. So that's how we know this is where we should be directing our flows. And so what you said about a recession flushing out the excess, I think that's a really, really good point as well because it's sort of going to, you're going to be separating the wheat from the chaff here, right? So it's only the good companies that will remain and the bad companies will sort of get washed away, will go into bankruptcy. So anyone who's just been floating through the last 10 years because of all this liquidity in the system and the zero rates and all of that, that free ride is coming to an end. And therefore, only the best management team will be able to survive. Only the best management team can take their company through this difficult period of time and come out onto the other side. And those are the companies that we want to buy, right? Those are the companies that we want to invest in to hold for our retirement packages or whatever you want to say. But those are the ones that will ultimately be the stars. So, I think this is going to be a very, very interesting time. And as much as people start to, you know, or people are praying for a very early bull market, I don't think that's something that we really should be asking for. I think we should be asking for very, very ugly times so that we can actually reset all of this and put our money in good companies that we can actually hold for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, I haven't met any investors that, that I have um, a lot of respect for who have been some of the best investors that either I've met personally or I follow their work <clears throat> that are particularly excited about buying at these valuations or even were, you know, six, seven months ago. And I think that we both talked among ourselves and publicly expressed that if a new bull market were to have started back then or even recently, that it would be at the highest valuations for any bull market in this country ever. And I think that, that some of the reflexivity to keep buying every dip, unfortunately, comes back to this phenomenon of, for the better part of 14 years, it's just worked, right? Ever since the uh, Fed not only flooded the system with money back in response to the great financial crisis and really to Lehman's collapse, 
Uh, but also when FASB suspended mark to market and engaged in mark to make believe so that the banking system could pretend it was solvent for long enough to really manufacture a more meaningful repair. There's been very few periods where you can't just hold your nose and buy almost anything and then see it appreciate over time. Now, obviously, that precludes literal shit codes. But at the end of the day, you know, most of this stuff is going from the bottom left to the upper right of the chart. And in doing so, it's it's showing us that for a long period of time, risk management has not mattered that there was this Tina trader, there is no alternative in the equity markets. And it meant just about everything floated higher, that this abundance of liquidity put a bid under almost everything. And now we're entering a period where the opposite is true, where liquidity is going to likely become more constrained, where rates are appreciably higher, capital is harder to access, and that that will eventually have a dampening impact on risk appetites. But there's also a great rotation happening underneath the surface, and we can quantify it in the flows of people 50 and up. They're buying more bonds, they're selling more equities, they're at least buying more fixed income in aggregate. And that's a really important trend change because for the longest time, Time, they had no choice. They had to buy stocks. So now not only do you have a situation where, as you aptly pointed out, businesses, really only the strong survive. There is going to be a calling of thousands of companies that don't make any money, which is sad because many jobs will be lost. But on the other side of it, we have the opportunity to build a stronger, leaner economy that is more sustainable, that is less leveraged. And that's something that may reset the expectations of money managers who like business managers have been on easy mode for over a decade. They've been able to just sort of blindly buy and fly and not have to worry about it. Uh, you know, a lot of these long only funds have had it extremely easy. They've had some of the best returns they've ever had, even just buying in at the index level. That time is likely also changing. And I think part of it has to do with the changes that we've discussed, but another part of it has to do with the incredible concentration of the biggest components in the NASDAQ and in the S&P. And as we see regime shifts, as we see an end cycle environment, you know, it's it's likely sad as it is to say that the, the generals will also be taken down. And this is something where, you know, at first there's a lot of rush into the biggest players, but eventually as we see the market turn, they get hit very hard. We saw that in 2022, but I think what we've seen of late has been a reprieve rather than a reset. And I'm very uh, re reluctant to call this an early cycle environment. I still think we're at the end of the cycle. Rates are still high. We haven't yet gone into a recession. Retail net exposure to equities as a component of their net worth is at some of the highest levels in history, those highs being set in 2021. So we haven't seen that de-risking. We haven't seen the economic or earnings trough. We haven't seen a meaningful come about by the Fed to, you know, to easing. And those are all the things that typically are what end a bear market and bring us into a bull. And, and so it seems like there, there are some challenging times ahead. And, and I think this brings us back to our conversation about goods versus services. The durability of inflation in much of the services sector combined with a generationally close to low unemployment rate really sets the stage for the Fed to continue tightening far beyond what the market is pricing in, doesn't it? No, it absolutely does. Um, and I, I think 
I think we also have to consider that we're, we're still in a very, um, so when you said that we're in a late, late cycle environment, I think we, we definitely are. I mean, look at the yield curve. We're still in, a, in an inverted yield curve situation. And as long as that remains, I think we, we're still in uh, a very dangerous territory, which could lead to, you know, again, very slow growth or, you know, recessionary, uh, a recessionary situation. And I, I don't think the Fed's job is technically done. I mean, even if they think about not hiking at this point, I don't think that, uh, you know, they would even consider cutting rates anytime soon. It just doesn't seem like it's in the cards. And, you know, another bit of evidence of a late cycle environment, we've got banks tightening credit conditions and we have leading economic indicators falling for 13 months in a row. There's there's no real expansion or repair happening here. So it is it is important to kind of take things for where we are. We do see these very powerful counter trend rallies that happened in the context of a bear market. And after the dot-com bubble busted, there were five or six times the NASDAQ rallied over 20% that you know financial media were calling this a bull market. And then it would inevitably turn lower and make a new low. And it chopped sideways for about 10 years until it actually found a new all-time high after it eventually found its bottom. And some of those rallies were prolific up, you know, over 30, 40% like we're seeing now. So I think it's it's too early for people out there that are excited to call this a new bull market. It's probably still a reflexive rally within the context of a broader bear market, which means it's a wonderful time to raise cash. And for those that are inclined and uh, nimble, it's an interesting time to look for short opportunities well. It's it's also, you know, when hedges are cheap, if we are content to stay long, it's a decent time to consider them. And hedges are certainly very cheap with the VIX index at trading just below 15 here. There's a lot of complacency in the CBOE equity put call ratio. We've seen the largest inflows into tech that we've ever seen during any week in history. And the NASDAQ 100 options exposure, as I was writing on the uh, Macrovisor private Twitter feed today, they're, they're just they're going parabolic. There's just so many signs that there's sort of blow off that's happening right now that, that there's a lot of FOMO driven um, uh, just piling into stuff, almost panic buying of options that I would caution that this looks a lot like the end stages, that this sort of the final hurrah of this 14 year period of of. Um, you know, largely low rates and abundance of liquidity. And it's that reflexivity that's been built during that period of time that we're kind of working through. And eventually, I think that it will be punished. I think buy the dip will become sell the rip in a much more major way that that outpaces what we saw in 2022. So, you know, I'm of the mind that recession isn't a bad word as as you are. And I think we we just have to work our way through this period, making a shopping list of the things we've always wanted to own, being patient. And when we start to see that trough in earnings and in the economy, there's going to be some generational opportunities out there. But for now, with the services industry staying as resilient as it is and as much cost push inflation that is happening from there into the economy, the Fed has no reason to cut anytime soon. There's, there's so much more work to do. We've only been in this hiking regime since March of 2022. 
And while it may feel like a lot longer than that, it's important to consider the lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy, right? It takes a while. Right. And we're almost at that point, right? Where we're now, what, uh, about a year and a few months, right? So we know that that lag is usually anywhere between 12 months to 18 months, maybe at most 24, but we are somewhere around that 18-month mark almost, aren't we? Yeah, I, we're we're trying to, you know, kind of see past what the immediate noise is and what the longer-term implications are of that tightening cycle, which started in March of 2022. So, you know, we're we're about... 14 and a half months into it, uh, we're starting to see some of the impacts of that initial hike or a couple of hikes. And QT didn't start until June, which was sort of the junior version of QT. And then it got upsized to 95 billion a month in September. So we're not even close to a year out from when QT really uh, started at full speed ahead either. And I, I and we are, we're not a year out from when we saw those 75 basis point hikes. And so I, I feel like there's still more tightening from that, from the impacts of the credit cycle uh, uh, ending from credit conditions tightening from banks, lending standards rising for all customers, and just rates as a whole being as high as they are. I feel like, you know, even though we have some of this countervailing stimulus from China and Japan, and that's helping to drive liquidity into the system and help to push risk asset prices higher, I feel like that's a temporary impact. I, I just have a feeling that the idea of decoupling here for those economies and for others, maybe outside of India, but perhaps even there, it seems a little far-fetched. Right. So we're seeing what's happening in China. And even though they're trying to, you know, there's new talk of stimulus even today, um, I don't think the economy is recovering the way that everybody had hoped it would, right? So there are still those lingering effects of covid um, people are still scared to go out. That initial burst of people going out and, you know, sort of the reopening and that pent up demand, let's say, um, mainly in terms of services, that sort of waned a little bit now, right? And we're seeing a sec another, not a second, but, you know, another wave of COVID uh, flow through China. And while, you know, COVID still exists everywhere else and you know, people are not very concerned about it. I think the Chinese are a little bit more concerned because they fear that what happened last time, that the total lockdown, um, if, if COVID gets out of hand again over there, um, their government might just lock them down all over again. And because who's to say that, you know, they'll stop. Um, so I think there's a little bit of caution there surrounding the COVID situation. There's also the situation that global goods demand has fallen off, for which reason their industrial production also has fallen off. So all in all, China's recovery uh, hasn't been the way anyone's expected it to be. And um, so now the government is actually thinking about more stimulus, particularly for their uh, real estate sector, which actually has been suffering quite a bit over the last uh, couple of years. Um, even today, there was news that Evergrande missed some payments and 
there's still news that a lot of the bonds and especially the offshore bonds, the dollar bonds are getting, you know, restructured. Um, some of them are going into default. So there's still a lot of concerns with their property market. And I think that's something that they're trying to drive now. And that's a big concern for a country where really the biggest part of their economy is the property market and the construction activity that goes along with it. So I'm imagining that with them having trouble trying to stimulate their way out of the mess that they're in at present, that if they can't get the property market moving again, if they can't get construction moving again, that the Chinese reopening is, is going to be a lot less of a global impact. And I think that in the first few months of it, people were very excited. There was a lot of buying of commodities ahead of it. There was a lot of buying of, of Chinese equities ahead of it. Now we've seen Chinese equities struggling to get out of bear market territory, having given up most, if not all of their year-to-date gains. And we see a rude awakening where production activity is uh, not recovered nearly as much year over year. Nearly, near, neither has retail sales. It's been about half of what was expected about, uh, across both categories. So I think the only thing we can hang our hat on with China that's somewhat impressive is the rate at which they're buying oil. Absolutely. And I think the good thing about oil, though, is you can't stockpile it, right? So yes. just because they are demanding oil and just because they are buying that oil, um, and they're doing so maybe because they think that this is you know cheap right now, but it just because they're buying doesn't mean that that actually will cause activity to return. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's an important one for folks to consider is you can stockpile oil for a long time. As long as you store it properly, you know, they, they might consider this sort of a strategic reserve that they're building is unfortunately the U.S. drains theirs. Um, but uh, Aisha, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I think we should pick it up in next, next week's podcast. I want to make sure that we're mindful of everyone's time out there. And so this has been great. It's, we've covered a lot of different areas. And um, I want to just send my heartfelt thanks to all of our supporters out there. Now, folks, if you enjoy our podcast, you can get it at any of the major venues, Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, etc. Please consider leaving us a review, giving us your feedback, letting us know what you like what you want us to cover more of. Uh, we love hearing from our listeners and we're really appreciative for all the support we've seen. So as we close out this episode and prepare for the weekend ahead, Aisha, do you have any thoughts you want to share with our audience here? So we need to be mindful about, you know, what happens next with the debt ceiling, right? So we do have um, the Fed meeting coming up towards the middle of this month, June 14th, I believe is the date. Yes. Um, but prior to that, I think next week is when, so Monday is when um, we run out of, uh, or, or the treasury technically runs out of money. So we're going to have to see what happens next week and what happens with the bond buying and with the tre treasury sort of issuing more debt. So all of that, I think we'll get a little bit more clarity next week now that the debt ceiling deal has gone through. But another important event, obviously, is the OPEC Plus meeting on Sunday. And <clears throat> I wrote a note about that on Macrovisor yesterday. I think it's going to be a very interesting situation. Um, so let's keep our you know, uh, eyes and ears open for what happens on Sunday. Absolutely. Great points. And thanks again to everyone for listening. We will catch you next week.